The reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13, and 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 11. You will find these passages on pages 952 and 953 in your pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13. I appeal to you, my brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 11, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but Christ gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. This is God's word. You guys come over after me. Well, good morning, Westgate Church. I'm nice and loud. Uh, it is great to be here with you on such an exciting day. Uh, pastor installations are a wonderful time. Uh, I've always thought that when God gives a gift, he quite often wraps it in a person. And so the Bible tells us that uh, God gives gifts to the church in terms of people. So today we are recognizing uh, that Pastor Bruce and Pastor Travis are gifts of God to this congregation. For that, we're grateful. Um, I also, before I uh, dove in, uh, wanted to say thank you again uh, for the time we had with you at Sandy Island in the fall. Uh, that was a wonderful retreat, and you were very hospitable uh, to myself, my family, and I was really grateful uh, to spend that time with you. Um, how many here were at that retreat uh, this past fall? Quite a few of you, okay. Well, you're going to recognize uh, the text that I spoke, if you remember it, I guess. Uh, I'm, uh, no, I do have more than one message, but I wanted to bring back to you uh, the same theme that I spoke on because it's very important to remember some central truths about Christ church and the role of leadership in Christ church. So we're going to consider uh, what Paul has to say about leadership from 1 Corinthians. Um, this morning, as we prepare to install Pastor Bruce and Pastor Travis, uh, I wanted to, first of all, uh, give us a little bit of perspective on what that installation is all about. Um, you may be wondering about that term. I'd be happy to. Fix your connection here. The connection to the box is just... Uh, Very good. How's that now? Yeah. All right, we'll do, we'll do that. We'll let that hang there. Um, you actually are one of uh, nine churches of the 70 in New England, in our district, 
who have been going through pastoral transition this, this past year. Um, so there's been a lot of churches in pastoral transition. And uh, I was uh, in Maine working with one of those churches recently, and I was talking to uh, uh, one of the leaders in the church as we prepared for their installation service. And uh, this leader said to me, uh, I know how to install a dryer. I know how to install a stove. I know how to install uh, an engine transmission. Uh, how do we install a pastor? And I, I thought it was a good question. It, it's a little bit of an odd phrase, a installation of a pastor. But what we really mean by that is that there is a, a position, there is an office in the church uh, into which we place those who are properly gifted and equipped. Uh, in the home, you wouldn't want to put a dryer where a stove should be. It's not a fit. It won't serve the function. Uh, similarly, in Christ's church, there are differing positions of service for which God particularly gifts and equips people for ministry. And so today, we're recognizing God's sovereign fit of Pastor Bruce and Pastor Travis for this particular time in this church. So we are installing them according to God's direction. Now, um, this morning, uh, you heard read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and then some of 1 Corinthians 3. And if you have your Bible, you can uh, keep that section open. I'm going to make reference um, to, to both uh, chapter 1 um, and chapter 3, and then a little bit to chapter 2 and 4 as well, all right? Um, so it, it'll help you to have it open there to page uh, 952 and 953. Now, this letter was written by Paul to a church that was dealing with disunity, division. And much of the, the division in that church had to do with the issue of leadership. Uh, you heard Paul writing uh, that some groups within the church uh, really favored the Apostle Paul and his time of ministry with them. Some really appreciated Apollos, and some really appreciated Peter, or Cephas, as we read. Um, now, to understand a little bit more why this became so divisive in the church, you need to understand a little bit about the culture of Corinth itself. Now, Corinth was a, a wealthy and very cultured city in Greece. They boasted a very large athletic stadium in their community. They had an 18,000-seat theater. There was a 3,000-seat concert hall in this city. So very cultured, very wealthy. And in this culture, um, leadership was largely viewed in terms of uh, impressive speech, those that could command an audience from the front. Um, so rhetoric and compelling speech were seen as impressive leadership traits. And Paul actually saw this view of leadership as problematic for the church. Which is why when he came to Corinth and began preaching the gospel, he purposely chose a different tact. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul actually describes how he came and what he did. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul is saying, my speech, my presentation, was not as polished and powerful as all the people you admire in your culture. He did this on purpose, because he wanted to show them that leaders in Christ's church are not to be gaining the attention for themselves, but pointing to Jesus Christ, the source of our faith. 
But despite Paul's efforts, the Corinthians were still very much influenced by their culture, and their view of leadership resulted in divisions within the church. For when your view of leadership is about giving glory to the one on the stage, you quickly divide into camps about who is better at it, who is more entertaining, who is more powerful and persuasive. And so Paul is addressing this division in the Corinthian church by presenting a different perspective on leadership, a distinctly Christian view of leadership, a view anchored in the person of Jesus and his message. So look with me again at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, and listen to what Paul has to say about the leaders that had come through the church and listen for his perspective on leadership. Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? And listen, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. First thing I want us to see today, a distinctly Christian view of leadership, that leaders in Christ's church are viewed as servants, not saviors. There's one savior and we serve him. Paul says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Christian leadership is first of all, not self-serving. We get this from Jesus who told us in Matthew that you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. In this world, leadership is about exercising control over others and then bringing glory to self. And he says, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christian leadership is not about the spotlight being on the leader, but about the leader directing the spotlight to Christ. Now, Christian leadership is about service, but it's also must be understood as not necessarily being a servant that belongs to others. Paul makes this clear in chapter 4, verse 1, when he describes exactly who it is he's serving. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. Servants of Christ. You see, the other extreme to being self-serving is to be people-pleasing. Instead of making it all about you, it's easy to then simply make it all about the will of others. And either side of that is a danger for a leader in Christ's church, either to be all about self or simply bending to the will of others. Paul says Christian leaders serve Christ. Christian leaders serve Christ, and in so doing, we're able to serve others freely. Now, you might say, well, how does that work out? How is it that we're able to serve others by serving Christ? I was thinking about this uh, this week. Uh, when I graduated high school, I took a, what is now called a gap year. It wasn't at that time. Um, I took a year off, and I was deciding to figure out what I wanted to do. So I worked a third shift on the docks for a while, uh, loading cables on ships. That was a rough job. I changed over. I worked in an egg pasteurization plant. After that year, I decided, you know, college sounds pretty good. And <laughs> But during my time uh, working at the egg pasteurization plant, I had the lovely title of being the owner's father's manservant, all right? So the owner's father was an elderly man, and he had a gentleman farm, and I was tasked by the owner of the company to go with his father and to make sure he didn't get into trouble. <laughs> and so I certainly cared for this man, but he kept wanting me to do things that frankly were not safe. So while I was serving him, I wasn't his servant. 
I reported to his son, who was my boss. And in a similar way, in the church, we serve, Christian leaders serve the church, but they report to Jesus. And Jesus gives us leadership, and through his wisdom, leaders serve well. So it's important for Christian leaders to recognize our identity is found in Christ, and our wisdom comes from him. And that is very freeing to, be, to know that we serve Christ, and then we provide leadership in the church. This results in a confident humility, a confident humility. So the first picture we have here of Christian leadership that Paul wants us to see is that Christian leadership is about service. It's about service. And serving Christ allows us to then lead others in a confident, in a humble manner. Second picture that Paul gives us. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So not just servants, but there's a a calling for these servants that through Christian leaders, people are coming to place their faith in Jesus Christ. The calling for spiritual leaders is the development of Christian faith in others. That's what we wanna see, other people coming to place their faith in Jesus Christ and growing in faith in Jesus Christ. And again, uh, Paul kind of comes back to this theme in chapter four, verse one. We read this earlier. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I love this phrase, stewards of the mysteries of God. So two pictures for considering pastoral ministry in the church, servants of God, stewards of his mystery, servants, stewards. These are different views of leadership than was common in Corinth. And it's a different view of leadership that's common in our day. We typically think of a leader as being the the general out front, the man with all the strength, with all the smarts. And Paul says Christian leadership is about service and stewardship. Let's consider a little bit more what this stewardship is all about. Um, If any of you here are Lord of the Rings fans, there's a wonderful uh, view of stewardship in those books or movies, whichever you prefer. and there's a realm in the, the plot, the land of Gondor, and the Gondor has no king. But it has a steward who is ruling in the king's place, even sits on a lower throne, not on the king's throne. You see, a steward manages an asset for somebody else. It does not belong to them, but they are managing it for another. And Paul says that Christian leaders are stewards of the mysteries of God. They are not owners of this mystery, but they are stewarding this mystery. Now, when you think about that phrase, the mysteries of God, don't think in terms of uh, how we use the phrase mystery, like an unsolved murder, uh, that genre of of, uh, movies or, or literature. When Paul uses this phrase mystery, he's referring to things of God that were previously hidden, but have now been revealed. Things that were previously hidden, not known, secret, but now have come to the light. Uh, as you, if you go through the New Testament, Paul uses this phrase often. And he talks about, in, in Colossians, that this mystery that's been hidden for ages and for generations has now been revealed, and this is the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory, is this mystery that has been made known because God took on flesh. 
became human and dwelt among us. And we saw God's character in the person of Jesus Christ. And as wonderful as that is, that is not the full goal that, that God came, became man for. But Christ went to the cross and took our sin upon himself so that we could have relationship with him in such an intimate way that Paul could say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This union that we have with Christ by faith is a mystery. And it's a mystery that is healing. It is repairing our relationships, first of all with God, with one another, that Christ has come to set things right. Christ in you, the hope of glory, is this wonderful mystery that has now been revealed. And part of Christian leaders' goals is to make this mystery known. Because the truth is, this mystery, though it's been revealed in Christ, is still often hidden to us. We don't see the full beauty of Christ. And so Christian leaders are trying to proclaim Christ through the word and make him known, that we can put our faith in him and grow in faith. Christian leaders are servants, servants of God. Christian leaders are stewards, stewards of the mystery of God. And this has huge implications for Christ's church. For, for a church to receive their leader, they must recognize their leaders belong to God. Their leaders are stewarding the mysteries of God. And for pastors to respond well to this, they place their trust in Christ to whom they belong as his servant. And then they proclaim the mysteries that have been made known to them. Now, one of the best ways for pastors to grow um, in being able to proclaim this truth well is for the truth to captivate their hearts increasingly. And I know that's the case for you, Bruce, and for Travis. You've been captivated by the mysteries of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're called to continue to grow in that grace and to let that grace capture our hearts. And in so doing, when the grace of God captures our hearts, it leads us right back to service. Service, stewardship, service, stewardship. They go hand in hand. Christ's perspective for leadership in his church. I am very excited how God has led you all this past year. I'm sure at this point last year, you couldn't have imagined this would have been the outcome. Sure, truly, we plan our ways and God directs our steps. But we see a rightness in how God has led this church. And I'm excited for you to see how God is going to lead Westgate Church in the season ahead. At this point, I want to call up Bruce uh, or Travis first. Travis first. And we'll come back and pray for you afterwards. Thank you, Sam, for that. In the 5th century, when St. Augustine was retiring from his office as bishop, he was handing the responsibility of the position to a successor, a man named Euraclius. Euraclius is mostly lost to history. But when he stood to preach for the very first time, his predecessor, the legendary scholar and theologian and defender of the faith, Augustine himself was there to listen. And Euraclius, feeling woefully inadequate, to stand before such a titan of the faith, timidly remarked, the cricket chirps while the swan is silent. Four centuries earlier, the Apostle Paul wrote what would turn out to be his last letter. And in it, he sent encouragement to his protege and his friend, Timothy. It was his last chance to teach 
and to reassure this young pastor who had been given a significant responsibility and would soon be left to carry it without his mentor. Timothy was being called to carry on where Paul had left off, and he probably felt some of what Heraclius felt. Paul, who met Jesus in a blinding vision, whose life was transformed from ruthless persecutor to fearless evangelist, through whom the Holy Spirit had worked to establish churches all over the ancient Near East, and who had found himself preaching the gospel before both massive crowds and rulers in the Roman Empire was handling, handing the baton to Timothy. Paul's adventures are legendary, his influence unmatched in the spread of the gospel throughout the ancient world. His writing had been copied and shared house to house and town to town in what was God's sovereign plan to bring the good news of salvation to the Gentile world. And now, as his death nears, Timothy is being called to step up. Paul seems to know how daunting this must be for Timothy. And so he tells them in the opening of this final letter, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. It was a timely reminder for Timothy Evidently, he was somewhat intimidated by the idea that he would carry on where Paul left off. Yet Paul does not say, you've got this. You were the top of your class. You know this stuff. You're skilled and capable, and I know you're going to be amazing. Instead, Paul points Timothy to something else, to some other power by which he will rise to the challenge and succeed. It will be God's power that sustains Timothy because God himself is on mission to bring his gospel to the nations. And some, that, that is a mission that he aims to accomplish through men like Timothy. I can't help feeling a certain kinship with Timothy. He was a young man who was given a staggering responsibility and one that he apparently he fe- did not feel he was ready to bear. Yet Paul has every confidence not because he thinks that Timothy will prove himself strong enough, but because he knows that Timothy will continue to look to the Lord for strength, for courage, and for self-control. He knows Timothy will find his strength not within himself, but in the gift of God to equip him for the work he has been called to carry. It was a habit that Paul himself demonstrated throughout his own ministry, and in a passage that we heard from Pastor Sam this morning in 1 Corinthians, he points out that while he was with the church in Corinth, he did not come proclaiming the good news of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He says, instead, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message are not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul is committed and has been for his entire ministry to one message, Christ and him crucified. Even though he traveled far and wide and preached among crowds and to households, to both Jews and to Gentiles, it boiled down to this, the core of the gospel message, Jesus the Messiah crucified for sinners. And the strength to proclaim that message is not his own, but one that brings people to faith and confidence in the power of God. Paul reminds them that he is weak, 
fearful and trembling, and that he did not have polished speech or fanciful rhetoric or a professional presentation. All he had was the gospel. These are the marks of fruitful gospel ministry that Timothy has seen in his mentor, Paul, and they are the things that will sustain him in his own ministry. As I shift into this new role and responsibility here at Westgate, it is with no small amount of weakness and fear and trembling. I am keenly aware of how much I have to learn, how far I have to go, and how much wisdom I lack. I empathize with Euraclius. I feel like a cricket following in the footsteps of those who are more qualified, more capable, and just plain smarter than me. Like Timothy, I feel the weight of my calling, and it scares me. But I am comforted by Paul's reminder to his friend. I trust that God's power is put on display when he works through the week. I know that God equips us for the work he calls us to carry out, and I know that no matter where this calling leads, it will be to preach Christ and him crucified. So this is my commitment to you, to Westgate Church to pursue and depend on the Lord for wisdom and strength, to seek him for courage and for self-control and for Christ-like character, and to preach the gospel, the good news that the Son of God gave his life to give us new life. I feel like a cricket standing before you, woefully underqualified for this holy calling. But God is enough, and my confidence is in him. And I pray with all my heart that yours is also. Thank you. As I contemplated this moment and the commitment that I want to make to you as a church, my thoughts went back to my spiritual journey and the help that I received on that journey. Perhaps the most important person was my brother Wayne. Not so much because of his words, but because of what he allowed Christ to do in his life. My brother was a rebel. He was an angry person. He had an incredible temper. He was arrested a couple times as he got, along, got, got into fights alongside of one of his friends a friend who eventually ended up on FBI's 10 most wanted list. Um, He was selfish. In fact, when he started to get into philosophy and he shared his philosophy of life with me, it was all about serving yourself. And he would chide me for thinking about other people. Well, he left Connecticut and went to Haight-Ashbury the center of the hippies in that day. But he came back transformed because he met Jesus Christ. He came back peaceful, calm, centered, and giving his life away to others. He particularly invested himself in wayward youth, those who were troubled and on the wrong path. And it was that transformation in his life that got me to start questioning my own. I grew up in a church. I was confirmed. I became a member. 
But his Christianity was so different than mine. I was just walking through it. His was life transformational. I went to a couple meetings with him where I heard about Christ, and it resonated with me at that time. This is right. And so I went and prayed, and I said, God, I know what I'm hearing is right, but I'm in college. Wake me up in a couple years after I've had my college fun. Well, my brother died in a motorcycle accident, so I was a bit on my own, but God directed me to a particular prayer meeting where a college student named John shared the message that changed my life. And it started with this idea that God has a, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He offers this abundant life. And I said, that makes sense. If God's a loving God, certainly he'd offer that to us. And, and then the question was asked, so why aren't people experiencing that? I said, that's a good question. Why am I not experiencing that? And the answer was, because our sin separates us from the God who wants to give us that life. Now, as I read that, I thought of sin as breaking the rules. But sin, I've come to realize, is much more than that. It's not simply breaking the rules. It's breaking the heart of God because we push him off the throne of our lives and we put ourselves there instead. Instead of living and walking with God and living for him, I, I was living for myself. Instead of seeking to, to find my fulfillment in the love and the embrace of Christ, I was pursuing love in, in all the wrong places. What was the answer? The answer was to found in God sending his son to take my sin. And you think of this as, it was my sin that was separating me from God, but I read then that Jesus became sin for us so that we could know God. And so how do I receive him? And he said, you have to believe in him. Not a believe about him. We're not talking about you believe the facts that Jesus came to earth and he took your sin. But to personally trust in that, that work of Jesus in your life. And it eventually comes across like this. I was trusting myself. If God had asked me, why, why should I give a relation, have a relationship with you? I'd say, well, because, uh, well, I'm going to work harder. I'm going I'm to become more religious. I'll read my Bible more. I'll pray more. And I'll be really sincere. And notice who I was trusting in. I, 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 I. To believe in Christ, I learned at that time, was not to trust in myself, but to trust in Jesus Christ. I don't deserve a relationship with God except Christ paid for me so that I could have that gift freely by placing my trust in him, not in myself, for that relationship with God. Well, John then helped walk with me spiritually. And we would meet together and pray together, and he would open the Bible, and we'd study it together, and I began to grow spiritually. And then I became a part of a church, a family, a spiritual family, where we are for each other. 
and we look out for each other and we care for each other and we bear one another's burdens and if we have trouble with each other, we reconcile and we face those things. And so God used those people, those experiences in my life to bring me to this place today. So as one of your pastors, one of your leaders along with the elders, I want to give you and those around us those things. I want to be a part of a church that is intent on offering Jesus Christ to everyone throughout Metro West. I want to be with you and working with you to, to disciple one another, to come alongside and help each other to grow spiritually and to, to experience the abundant life that Christ offers us. And I want to be with you, the family of God in Jesus Christ, one with each other. Thinking of Jesus' words, of Paul's words about Jesus, when he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Consider one another more important than yourselves. For that's what Jesus did. He put aside his glory. He took on our humanity. But much more, he took upon our sin. That's humility. That's service. That's the way we need to live with one another. So as I now, along with Travis, are moved into what we often think of a lead position, I know both of us say, we're not the leaders. And I hope you don't look to us as the leaders. For there is only, should only be one leader in this church. That's the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. May we follow him and may you follow him. Thanks, Travis. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, so now we've come to the part um, of the service. It's called the Covenant of Installation. And just so you know, my name is John Quazo. I serve as one of the elders here at Westgate. So what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement, a formal agreement on a set of commitments. Um, and in this case, it's a set of agreements between our pastors here and us as a congregation. Um, about our commitments to each other as we serve the Lord together here at Westgate. So by reciting these commitments together, we express our dedication as a body to this covenant, to this agreement. So I will recite um, the uh, commitments. Uh, the pastors will respond. And at the end, um, I will ask you to stand and read the last section together. Do we have the, do we have the words for this? Are we, we working on it? Ah, great. Thank you. So there's a section at the end that we'll all, we'll all read together. So let's start. So God being your helper, do you commit yourself, yourself to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching? I do. I do. Do you aim to build your life and your ministry on Christ and his gospel, leading Westgate to pursue lives of worship to the glory of God. I do. I do. Great. Do you aspire to live by the power of the Holy Spirit to follow Christ in his love, 
service, and faithfulness to God and his purposes. I do. I do. Do you commit to be fellow servant leaders with the elders to guide the congregation to fulfill the vision that Christ be treasured above all else in the Metro West community and throughout the world? I do. I do. Knowing that Christ is the one true shepherd, will you, with the elders, shepherd the flock of God among us, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, but being examples to the flock? I do. I do. Do you covenant to proclaim Christ, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that you may present everyone mature in Christ? I do. I do. Let's stand together. And together, let's read. God being our helper, we covenant to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves, to go forth and make disciples of all nations, to conduct our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, that we might shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life in the glory of God. Amen. Please be seated.